who wrote a hymn entitled, My Savior First of All. The hymn contained these words. She wrote, When my life work is ended, and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, He will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior, first of all. Amen. I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. I long to meet my Savior, first of all. This is a heart of someone that desires to be face to face with their Lord. And these words from Fanny Crosby that she wrote, they have even more special meaning. Because you know what? Fanny Crosby was blind. And she wrote, I can't wait to see my Savior's smile. She longed for the day when all things would be restored, including her sight, and she would have the privilege of looking upon her Savior face to face. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, do you long for the same thing? Like, do you long to see your King face to face? Do you long for the fulfillment of the promise of Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, because the, the ultimate promise that awaits the follower of Jesus is that there is a day that will come when we will have this unspeakable privilege to stand before the fullness of the presence of God. There will be a day for every person who trusted in Christ for salvation when we will be with Him. And there will be this moment, this absolutely profound moment that my words cannot do justice when for the first time since the Garden of Eden, men and women will look upon the Lord God fully. Amazing. John MacArthur, he writes, In heaven, since we will be free from sin, we will see God's glory unveiled in its fullness. That will be a more pleasing, spectacular sight than anything we have known or could ever imagine on earth. No mere earthly pleasure can even begin to measure up to the privilege and the ecstasy of an unhindered view of the divine glory. In Revelation 22, it describes this moment. It's this moment when Satan has been finally defeated, when the final judgment has occurred, the new Jerusalem has come down from heaven that God has prepared for His people. And Revelation 22, starting in verse 3, says, But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, meaning in the new Jerusalem, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need for light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And, he will, and they will reign forever and ever. They will see his face. That has not happened since God walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. As it says in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were the first, the last humans to see God face to face. 
But since they rebelled, sin has kept kept humanity separated from God. And through Christ, we are redeemed. But as Paul says, we await the fullness of the fulfillment of our reconciliation when we go to be with the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful hope. For now, though, God's word is clear. No man, even those redeemed by Jesus, may see his face until we are fully sanctified in heaven. Exodus 33, 20, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6, 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Abraham and Moses and Jacob and others in the Old Testament, they they walked with God. Jacob even said, I have seen the face of God. But these were all theophanies. They were forms that represented the true God. For followers of Christ, the coming of Jesus is amazing because Jesus came so that though John 1.18 says no one has ever seen God, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus came to make the God whom we cannot look directly upon known. It is through Jesus we come to the Father and secure in Him. One day, there will be that day that we will stand before God with unveiled face. And here's the thing. God did not desire to hide His face from us. He didn't want that. It was humanity that first hid themselves from God. Because Adam and Eve could not stand before the one whom they had rebelled against. And that's what we want to look at today. This morning's message is entitled, What is this that you have done? And I have entitled that, taking it right from that question that God asks Eve in the garden when he confronts her for eating the fruit of the tree. This morning, we're going to examine the immediate effects of the fall that they had on men and women. Effects that have been lasting, that have touched every person who has ever lived. Effects that have had personal and relational and eternal consequences for all of us and can only be redeemed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I began with the picture from Revelation and the promise of being face-to-face with God because I want us to hold up in our minds the hope that we have in Jesus Christ of being in the full presence of God in eternity. That is a sure hope that we have, even as we consider the muck and the mire of sin that is the present reality of life. Because our hope is rooted in the fact that all I speak of this morning is redeemed in Jesus Christ. 
and we will be fully reconciled to a future glory. And so we hold to that hope even as we look at the present brokenness of our world. Last week, we looked at what led to the fall, and we saw in verse 5 and verse 6 of Genesis 3 that it was doubt and it was desire that led Eve to take the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat of. And last week, I gave you one key takeaway from that message that I hoped would stick with you as a warning, and it was this. When doubt in God's character takes hold of a person, that person will eventually succumb to being ruled by their own desires rather than the commands of God. And this is what we see happen with Eve. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so that's what we looked at last week. And so this week, we want to look at the effects of that decision You know, Satan, who had tempted and persuaded Eve to eat of the fruit, he had made promises to her of what would happen when she ate of it. He told her in verse 5 of Genesis 3, when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the reality is, Satan's promise did come partially true. And this is often what happens when Satan persuades someone to sin. We will be persuaded with a partial truth. But whatever aspect of his promise ends up coming true, it will do so in the most horrible of ways, as we see in the case of Adam and Eve. Look at verse 7. She took, she ate, she gave some to Adam. It says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Satan promised that their eyes would be open, and they were. That came true. But what they received by eating the fruit God commanded them not to eat of was not that they became like God. Instead, their eyes were open, and they became aware that they were naked. That's the immediate result. But what does that mean? Because here's the thing. Adam and Eve had been naked the whole time. right? Since they were created in Genesis 2... They were naked, and that wasn't a problem until now. So the verse certainly doesn't mean that they finally realized they were naked as though they looked down and like, whoa, there's no clothes. What happened? They knew that they were naked. They knew they didn't have clothes, but it was the first time where they felt that they needed clothes. Why? Here's what I think. When the narrative says their eyes were opened, I think it refers to a perception change that happened. 
They saw or they understood things from a new perspective. Not a better perspective, but a new one. This is because they, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, they gained a new perspective of good and evil. And they knew that they were naked refers to the fact that they suddenly felt exposed because they realized they were standing on the side of evil. In disobeying God's command came this recognition, we're on the wrong side. And with that recognition came shame and came a desire to hide came this desire not to be found out. Their eyes were opened, and they saw clearly God's way was right, and we took the other path. Matthew Henry, he puts it this way in his commentary. He says, The eyes of their consciences were opened. Their hearts smote them for what they had done. Now, when it was too late, they saw the folly of eating forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness they had fallen from and the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved and felt a disorder in their own spirits of which they had never before been conscious. I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking the clearest way that I can illustrate the shame that Adam and Eve were feeling this moment is by explaining what happens in the cycle of addiction. Because it is the weightiest sense of shame that I know to exist. And some of you will understand firsthand what I mean. I know it personally from my years and my past of struggling with pornography. The cycle always starts with a desire. And the desire begins to escalate. Sometimes slowly. Sometimes rapidly. It escalates with a battle in the mind and the promises of pleasure and fulfillment. It's much like Satan's lies to Eve. That thing you desire will open your eyes. And that lie leads to acting upon the desire, maybe for a moment, maybe for an hour, maybe for a day. There's a space of false bliss that if you can maintain it, what you are doing, doing feels worth it. And it is at that point where dopamine is hitting like crazy that keeps people captive. But once you've had your fill, the haze lifts, and the false satisfaction that your body unwittingly produces subsides, and it is followed by immediate, horrific, paralyzing, soul-crushing shame. And all you want to do is hide from it. 
You don't want to feel it. You don't want to know it. You want to bury it. You want to keep it from others. You want to keep it from yourself. And so you hide the bottle. You delete your search history. You erase your messages. You flush the remains of it down the toilet. Whatever it may be, each response is an attempt to hide. Each response is a different expression of Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves together to cover themselves so they wouldn't be exposed. The feeling of shame and the desire to hide, it happens in momentary sin as well. It's not just an addiction. It's just there's this elevated feeling of it in addiction. And the best response that humanity has been able to come up with to deal with shame is to hide it. And I want to tell you this morning, it will kill you. It will keep sin hidden that will kill you. It will lead to death because shame is a powerful force to keep sin hidden. And Satan will do everything he can to pile more and more on so you keep hiding. Before I stopped hiding, there was such a weight on my heart, I actually thought I was going to have a heart attack. It's how bad it had gotten. Genuinely, at one point, I thought, I'm going to die. Because it was so heavy. Shame is an incredibly hard master that came with the fall. It will demand to remain hidden at the cost of your soul. You know, even if we don't consider the effects from a purely, or from a spiritual perspective, if we just consider the effects from a clinical perspective, shame leads to social withdrawal, deeper addiction, physical health problems, low self-esteem, lack of trust, performance and people-pleasing to make up for the shame, avoidance of talking in order to not slip up, compulsive and excessive behaviors, anxiety, depression, eating disorders... These are all things shame produces just in the natural. You think about the weight of the effect of it on your soul. Do you need to be free from shame? Has it owned you and controlled you for too long? There's a Savior named Jesus that says, come to me. Come to me if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you are carrying too heavy of a load, and lay it down. You need to confess. You need to stop hiding. You need to lay it at the altar of Christ so that He can lift that burden off you. Scripture is clear. There's no condemnation in Christ. Come to Him. Lay it down so that you can be free. That's what he offers you. Adam and Eve responded to their shame by covering themselves. They covered themselves before one another. And we'll see in a moment, they hid themselves from God. 
And this is because sin and shame is a relational destroyer, whether it be between one another or between God and man. Let's read verse 8, and then we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll just tease this out a little bit more. Verse 8 to 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Now what I think is interesting is the extra detail given in Adam's explanation that he gives to God for why they were hiding from God. I think there's an intentional contrast between when Adam and Eve hide themselves from one another and when they hide themselves from God. Because when they hide themselves from one another, the text simply says it was because they realized they were naked, they covered themselves. But when they hid themselves from God, Adam says, I heard you, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. It's a bit of a difference there. It may seem inconsequential, but I don't think it is. And as I was reflecting on this this week, I felt the difference was highlighted for me. The difference is in the reasons why we hide from people and from God. Both are rooted in shame, but the motivation for why we hide that shame is different. When Adam and Eve hid themselves from one another, it was motivated by what we talked about last week, the pride of life. But when they hid themselves from God, it was because they were afraid of condemnation. Think about this. When we hide from one another, why do we do it? What is the primary reason that we hide from one another? By and large, it is because we want to be seen and we want to be thought of a certain way by other people. That is the pride of life. I want people to see me a certain way, think of me a certain way, because I deserve to be thought of this way. Pride of life. And so we hide from one another. We aren't worried about condemnation in a judicial sense when we're talking about people the way we are with God. We're afraid of being exposed. To have people recognize, wait, you aren't as put together as what I thought you were. Like that is a horrific prospect for us. We can't stand it because of the pride of life. This is one of the deepest, deepest strongholds in our culture. It is one of the deepest strongholds in church culture. And the walls that we put up are the same as the walls that Adam and Eve put up, covering themselves with the loincloth. Nothing to see here. Everything's good. It's a stronghold. Because if we truly believe the Bible, if we truly understand what having faith in Jesus means, then we would know none of us are good. None of us have it all together. 
We're all struggling with sin. We're all fallen. We're all broken. And we're all looking to a Savior who makes us righteous in the eyes of God. We're all trusting. And I'm telling you, church, the sooner Christians can come to accept we are all works in progress, then things can get a lot more real in church. And God can work much more powerfully in and through us. We just stop putting up walls. That's the primary reason why we hide from others, the pride of life. We have to be seen a certain way. In contrast, the reason we hide before God is not about the pride of life. We hide from God because we fear condemnation. We know that He will expose us. He will not let sin stay hidden. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Listen, those words are only comforting if you really understand the security and forgiveness you have in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, those words are terrifying. Like, when you read the description of that, when you really read the description, that sounds painful. Have you ever thought about that? Like, it says, it's, a, it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting, dividing to the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That sounds painful. Like, that's not fun. That's not an enjoyable, but that's what the Word of God does. No creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked. All are exposed. And yet we try to hide from God when we feel shame because we don't want to give an account. We hide from God because He exposes us in our sin, and we're forced to deal with it. We have to, we have to stare into the face of our wickedness. And in order to be able to do that, we have to have utter confidence in our position in Christ, in the forgiveness of our sins, in the identity that we've been given that is unwavering and unchanging regardless of our sin. Too many followers of Jesus proclaim with our mouths, Jesus has forgiven me, but functionally, we're afraid of condemnation, so we stay hidden from God. Because we don't fully trust what will happen. And when He exposes us, and He will expose us, we're terrified. What's going to happen? God exposed Adam and Eve. Verse 11. He asked him where he is, and he says, Who told you you were naked? How'd you figure that one out, Adam? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Uh-oh. He knows. Right? They're exposed. They're laid bare before God, and they have to face their sin. Shame causes us to want to flee. 
And so if our hearts are not right with God or shame has a stronghold on us, that's what we're going to do. We're going to run. We're going to hide like Adam and Eve. And when God comes and finds us and exposes us, if the hold of shame is strong enough, when he confronts us, there's one last line of defense that we have that we'll try and use. Oh, God found me out. Now what am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'm going to blame someone else. That's what happens. Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. <laughs> like it's funny. We always read it and it's funny, but it's really, it's really awful. <laughs> Like, Adam blames Eve. He's like, well, the woman. The woman ate of the fruit. What was I supposed to do? But even more insidious than that, you see who he ultimately blames there? He's not ultimately blaming Eve. He is ultimately blaming God. This is your fault. You gave me the woman. The woman that you gave to be with me. She ate. He's essentially saying, if you hadn't given me that woman, then this wouldn't have happened. It's your fault, God. What a way for us to keep from being accountable to God. Blame Him. It's your fault. How can you hold me accountable? Characterize Him as the evil one, you did this to me. It sounds almost foolish when we talk about it, but this is what people do. Maybe this is what you've done. A lot of sin is excused by blaming God. But blaming others for your sin doesn't work, especially blaming God. Can you imagine a man in Adam's situation, well, God, I'm doing these things because of the wife that you gave me. I, I, I'm watching these things on the computer because she's not taking care of me. I, I, I'm finding it somewhere else because pff, she's not doing it. That's a really dangerous space to be. It's a sinful space to be, to blame it on someone else. You know, one of the other pieces that we see in this a lot in our world right now is the idea of victimization. It's all about blame. That is a huge problem in our world right now. It's heartbreaking to see because no one is ever the problem anymore. It's never me. No one is ever accountable. It's always someone else. And this is happening not just on an individual scale. This is happening on a grand scale. It's happening between cultures, between sexes, between races. Like, I'm guilty, according to a lot of thought nowadays, simply because I am a white male. Like, that's the worst thing you can be. Ultimately, underneath all of it is blame. It's all blame. 
And it started in the Garden of Eden. And so this is heavy. But it needs to be. Because shame is a big deal. And it will keep you in a place of sin. It will keep you in a place of bondage. It will keep you from your Savior, from truly knowing and loving Him. But I started with that picture at the beginning because there's good news. We don't end with shame. We go, no, there's hope. There's good news because there is a Savior who came for us. There is Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to live with shame. We don't have to live in fear of God, and we don't have to shift blame to other people. He came so that those things would not rule us anymore. He came so that we would not have to carry those things anymore. I said last week, John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. That means freedom from shame, freedom from sin, freedom from having to blame other people instead of fleeing and hiding and trying to cover ourselves, which will always be unsuccessful. What can we do? We flee to Jesus Christ and we seek refuge in Him. That's what we do. He is our refuge. Hebrews 6, 18 to 20 says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, uh, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a lot of words, but basically what it's saying is because of Jesus, we can come into that inner place, secure in Him before God, and seek the forgiveness that we need, and be sure that we receive it when we come to Him. 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all in all righteous unrighteousness. And so when we are secure in Jesus Christ, we can be sure in the forgiveness that we have before our Father in heaven. There is no longer need for shame to hold us. We can come before him and say, Father, I am sorry I have done this, and be sure of the forgiveness that we receive in him. Not judicial forgiveness, we receive that once when we come to faith in Christ, but relational forgiveness, coming close to our Father who loves us. And when we're secure in Christ, I'm telling you, if, oh, if we could get this, if I could get this, when we're secure in Christ, what does it matter that people think of us? What does it matter? Yes, I mean, it doesn't mean go around and be a jerk. That's not what I'm saying, right? Like, but what does it matter? We, we love one another. We live for the good of others. But in Christ, my identity is secure. So why do we have to hide? Why do we have to say, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. It's all good. 
Why can't we be secure in Christ and go to a brother, to a sister, and go, no, I'm really not good. That's what we're here for, to pray for one another, to lift each other up, to support one another. We don't need to hide from others when we're in Christ. We can lay aside that weight of insecurity, and we will do that when we believe what God's Word says. I want to end in verse 10 and 11, where God asks Adam two questions. He asks him, where are you? And then he asks him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? I just want to point out one thing. Do you see the goodness of God in these questions? God doesn't come into the garden and go, Adam, what have you done? What does God do? He walks in the garden. He says, where are you? Where are you? He's trying to bring him out. He's trying to bring Adam and Eve out of hiding. I'm here to meet with you. I'm here to be with you. Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? What's he doing there? He's, he's trying to bring a confession out of Adam. He didn't need the information. He knew where Adam was. He knew what he had done. But he was inviting him in. Where are you? Have you eaten of this? Come and tell me. Come and confess. Why? Because when we confess, we're not condemned. We're forgiven in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God only remains in unrepentance. And so he comes gently, and he draws them out with a question. He comes in such a way that's only a problem for a guilty conscience. But he comes seeking them. And he draws them out because he wants confession. Not to hold it over their head, but to free them from their shame so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Your growth step this week Examine your heart for shame. What are you hiding from other people? What are you hiding from God because of shame? Share it with the relevant people. If you're married, your spouse, if you have a close friend, your friend, and seek the forgiveness that he has promised that is yours in Jesus Christ. Stop letting it rule you. Stop letting it own you. Trust forgiveness is there through Christ. To that end, we are going to take the Lord's Supper today. And the Lord's Supper is a, a reminder that we have forgiveness in Christ. That because of the work that He did on the cross, we are forgiven. We can come into the presence of God and be fully known and fully loved. And so as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper...
I always would like to give us some time because Paul says, examine your heart. Examine your heart that when you take the Lord's Supper, you're doing it in a righteous way. And maybe even just through this message, there are some things that you need to lay down before God. There are some things that you need to confess before you partake of the Lord's Supper. So let's just bow our heads, each one of us. And just sit with the Lord for a moment. And just ask Him, Father, show me what is unpleasing to you. <laughs> 